Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, Litigation Director for CARE Coalition, Claudia Cubis, joins the podcast. We discuss the latest court cases that are currently moving the needle in asylum law, in an age where the country is tightening the restrictions on the admittance of asylum seekers. Claudia and her team continues to bring a voice to the voiceless, providing legal representation for immigrants fleeing their country. We also touch upon on how the government shutdown affects agencies operating detention centers and what that means for occupants housed in centers currently unfunded. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. Thank you, Ms. Claudia Cubis, for uh, coming on to Immigration Nerds. I'm happy to have you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm happy to be here. I've been listening to your podcast, and um, I've really appreciated some of the episodes that you've recorded, giving a, an insightful perspective of what's going on in our immigration field. So I'm happy to be here and provide yes. my perspective. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So as the litigation director at CARE Coalition, can you tell us a little bit about your responsibilities and the services that CARE Coalition provide? For sure. So the Capital Area Immigrant Rights Coalition, otherwise known as CARE Coalition, is a nonprofit that is based out of the Washington, D.C., and we provide legal services to detained adults and children who are in the custody of Immigration Customs Enforcement, ICE, or the Office of Refugee and Resettlement, ORR. Children are detained by ORR. Mm. And uh, the services that we provide run the gamut. It can be representation at the immigration court level or with USCIS, U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services, uh, for their individualized cases. It can also be appellate representation, so taking cases higher up. And it also involves the bare minimum, or what you might say, like your bread and butter. We can't represent everybody that we're seeing. Um, and we can't find a pro bono attorney with it for everybody that we're seeing, but at the bare minimum, we're going to provide these people that are detained with the ability to talk to an immigration lawyer or a paralegal volunteer and receive information so that they can represent themselves in their immigration court proceedings. And right now, our focus is in the Fourth Circuit, primarily to people who are detained in Virginia or Maryland. But we have been expanding, and especially we have a, a new program called the Immigration Impact Lab. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that is to try to push forward favorable precedent that helps our people, helps the people that we're served, the clients that we serve, the people that we're seeing. Hmm. Um, and in light of everything that's going on, it has become even a more important tool or a program at our hmm. disposal to do that. Great, great. Could you tell us... A a project or some projects that you're really excited to work on or currently working on? Um, so we believe that at the end of the day, the way that somebody accesses due process, which they're allowed under our laws, is if they have counsel. Mm -hmm. If somebody is represented, it makes the world a difference. There's lots of studies that show somebody has more than it increases the likelihood of winning their case increases as long as they have an attorney and it's less than 20% if they don't. One particular initiative that we're driving and that we're trying to support is increased representation, you know, what people call universal representation of detained people. Hmm. And uh, we have some wonderful pilots right now in Maryland where we're representing people, we're giving them a lawyer regardless of 
who they are, what their name is, where they're from, um, and in order to try to improve representation of detained immigrants. And I think the key here is the only limiting factor is whether the person is unable to pay. So in other words, the mm. person has to meet some type of indigency standard. But otherwise, we're not giving an attorney to somebody because we think their case is winnable, but rather mm. because we believe that person merits right. counsel. Right. Uh, so it's universal in that respect. Uh, mm. And I think this follows what many other states um, are doing. I know that uh, Colorado has pilots like that. New York was the first um, state to pilot programs of that nature. California and New Jersey just got $2 million. Hey, that's so, my so we're trying to push for that in Maryland and in Virginia as well. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one of them. And then mm. the other area is to um, challenge, to push back against the encroaching and limiting policies of this current administration which have made asylum, applying for asylum, and other protection-based relief very difficult, especially for those who have no counsel. Right. Um, so getting more into the specifics of uh, what you're saying, the administrative sort of tightening, I think you were working on a briefing with uh, Grace versus Sessions? No, so the, we did not uh, counsel on that case. It was CG, okay. the Center for uh, Gender and Refugee Studies, okay. who did okay. with ACLU. Okay. Um, but, we, you know, there's the case that um, was challenged to a limited degree mm-hmm. in Grace v. Uh, Whitaker, I guess, Grace v. Sessions, was matter of AB, which is a case that the Board of Immigration Appeals issued this past year. And in that case, the Attorney General said a lot of things, (laughs) basically creating rules of that cases based on domestic violence or gang violence are unlikely to succeed, um, saying that people who apply for asylum, even if they're not related to gender violence or gang violence, they're going to have to show that um, whoever's trying to persecute them, if it's not a government actor, um, that that behavior is condoned by the government and there's no ability to protect them, which is a heightened version of what was put, what was, what we've all in the immigration field believe is not the case. Is um, and that case was challenged by Grace v. Sessions, and uh, we're taking cases in our jurisdiction to push back because we have very good favorable case law in the Fourth Circuit and we believe that some of the things that the Attorney General stated in the mm-hmm. case matter of AB are incorrect just in terms of what Congress passed in our immigration laws and allowing people to apply for asylum. They, in, in effect, enacted the convention, you know, the UN Convention of Refugees and and they did that with very specific reasons. And a lot mm. of what the attorney general was saying at the decision contradicts the refugee law. Um, so we've been interested in that uh, aspect. Yeah. So reading into it, what kept on popping up was like credible fear mm-hmm. and what constitutes credible fear. And just trying to get a understanding of that. What's that screening process? What is the standard now? And like, how does it differ from the standard previously? So when somebody comes to the United States, whether they present themselves at a port of entry, which is what's going on right now down south, or crosses 
you know, without documentation crosses illegally. Our laws say that when they're apprehended or they come into, they encounter the Custom Border Patrol officer, they can be deported quickly. It's called expedited removal. Unless the person says, I'm afraid or expresses fear in some way or other, I'm afraid to return to my country. And when that person says that, as soon as that person says that, those Border Patrol officers are supposed to stop the deportation to allow that person to go through a credible fear interview with the asylum office, with an asylum officer. And when somebody goes through that interview, they have to show a significant possibility that they may be able to succeed on their claim. What that means is, They have to be able to articulate in some way that they fall into one of the protected grounds that our asylum laws Mm -hmm. allow. Um, Our asylum laws say that somebody who is unable or unwilling to return to their country because they cannot avail themselves of protection from their government Mm -hmm. on account because they're being persecuted on account of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group Mm -hmm. shouldn't have to should be allowed to remain here and be granted asylum if they can show all that. And what happened is that when the attorney general issued this case matter of AB, he said in that decision, even though that case was focused on a very particular asylum case, um, he started saying that generally there will gender cases, domestic cases related to domestic violence or gangs are going to have a hard time winning, and not Mm. just winning, but (laughs) passing a credible fear interview. And Mm. that a person who is afraid of persecution by a private actor, which in this case it could be a husband or a gang, has to show not just that the person is unable or uh, that the government in their country is unable or unwilling, but must show something more. And so the ACLU and Center for Gender and Refugee Studies challenged these new policy by the asylum office that was being implemented by the asylum office in the case called Grace v. Sessions. So right. before, we were seeing people could pass these credible fear interviews. They didn't have to show, for instance, that their government was completely helplessly unable to protect them. They just had to show that the government wasn't willing, and there's a lot of reports. They raised the standard. Yeah, they, they raised the standard. They, right. And so you could see a lot of approvals. Uh, generally, there was a high success rate. And after this case came down and policy was got policy guidance was issued, mm-hmm. you started seeing people on Twitter, people who were attorneys who were from nonprofits or private attorneys who were going down volunteering at the border, posting on Twitter or other social networking sites mm. saying like, here's a stack of credible fear interviews, all denied. Denied, right. All denied. Yeah. In yeah. essence, our laws say that when somebody applies for asylum, there have, you know, our courts, our judges, our asylum officers must make an individualized assessment. They have to take a look at all the facts, mm-hmm. all the specific facts of that person. And what Judge Sullivan, federal judge who decided the case Grace v. Sessions says, is that all these things that came out of this decision kind of contradict that individualized assessment because they create right. these blanket rules. And that was going to be one of the questions of like, what is the criteria that they have to meet for the protective grounds? Like, mm-hmm. um, so in order to receive asylum, 
an applicant must show they have been persecuted on at least one of five protective grounds. So what are those five criteria and how does an applicant prove that it's valid? Basically, when somebody is coming in, they tell their story and the asylum officer, sometimes the person who's telling their story, it's pretty clear. They'll say, well, I'm being harmed in my country because I'm a member of this party and now the government is cracking down on dissent, you know. All people. Uh, And so, right. And Mm -hmm. so the five grounds, five protected grounds are race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. When somebody tells a story, it's for the first four, it's generally pretty easy to see where they might fall in if somebody says, I believe in this politically, mm-hmm. and you know, they're harming me because I believe that. That's usually right. political. Or somebody says, I'm a Jehovah Witness, you know, mm-hmm. and they are forcing me to do this, which is against my religion. Right. And I disobeyed them and now they arresting me. Pretty clear cut. That's pretty yeah. clear cut. Right. But there's this other protected basis, particular social group, that's, uh, you don't know what that is. Mm. It could be all sorts of groups. And what was and that last one again? I'm sorry. Particular social group. Particular um, social group. Yes. Right. It's quite um, PSG <laughs> in the asylum lingo. Um, and, and I was actually going to ask you. That's one of my <laughs> questions here. I was like, what does PSG mean? PSG this, means particular yeah, okay, social group. Cool. Um, you know, and... <laughs> In Judge Sullivan actually went back to the UN uh, protocol, which instituted, created all of this refugee international law, and the handbook by uh, published by UNHCR, UN, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Human Rights Commissioner, and they said that a particular social group usually it's a group of people who have similar have experienced similar situations or tribe or um, experiences or, um, you know, have something that is um, piecing them together, right? That mm-hmm. is a common experience or a common attribute, a trait. Right, right. And so you had this past case called Matter of a RCG, which said that if somebody is in a domestic partnership, ACR, ARCG, Involved a Guatemalan uh, woman who was in a domestic partnership. I think she, I believe she was married, mm-hmm. and she was unable to leave her marriage because her husband kept beating her and believing that she was his. He was, it was her. He, she was his property. property. Mm-hmm. And so the Board of Immigration Appeals said, "We believe that's a particular social group because if there's women, Guatemalan women, who are in domestic partnerships and they cannot leave because." Their community views them as property. They see them as an extension of their husband, you know, mm-hmm. or they're unable to leave because the husband is driven by this perspective that he mm-hmm. has a hold over her. Mm-hmm. That is a particular social group. Um, mm-hmm. Matter of AB did away with that. Okay. Um, and now people have to tell their stories and, and try to see where they fall into a particular social group or create or not necessarily create, but say, okay, I have these common attributes, going back to the UN protocol. I have these common attributes that it's not just right. my experience, but hey, it's a Others. similar experience right, exactly. of all, a lot of the women in right. Guatemala or El Salvador. Reoccurring stories. Right, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's what 
when somebody goes in and tells their story through a credible fear interview, that's basically what an asylum officer is looking for or sometimes somebody says Mm -hmm. clearly. But many times people don't say that clearly. Uh, Many times the women that I've represented or I've helped, um, they go in and they say, you know, they're not saying, oh my gosh, my husband was driven by this societal attitude that I'm, you know, <laughs> right. and I therefore I can't leave. They go in and they said, look, he beat me and he he said he came at me with an axe and I mm. left, physically left the relationship and then he went and stalked me and mm. then I called the cops and nobody came. Yes. And why don't they come? It's because they don't think that this is important. Yeah. And what does that highlight? It highlights this inability to leave because the the community doesn't believe yeah. that they can leave or yeah, should leave. When something is clearly abusive situation. Right. Um, but maybe culturally it's not looked at in that sort of sense or taken more for granted. Or, or, you know, I would say that culturally there is something going on that is driving it. And so that mm-hmm. is where we start seeing particular social group. Right. Um, it makes it more difficult to But it's down. not something that you can, sometimes you can see it. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's not socially, you know, it's not, right. you know, more under the visible. Radar. It's right. a little bit more, you know, subtle, but it's still there. And mm-hmm. um, So where does that stand right now is there going to be a likelihood where that standard that benchmark Mm -hmm. will be lowered back to a reasonable level so the good thing is that judge sullivan enjoined the application of these heightened standards and told the government hey you can't use this new case that the attorney general just issued and apply it at credible fear interviews because it's a it's against even our our statute. It's against congressional intent and what our asylum laws say. Mm -hmm. And so now that means that people going to the credible fear interviews, you're probably not going to start seeing that stack of negative credible fear interviews Mm -hmm. anymore because they're going to use the old standard when people were being approved. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a good thing, but it's enjoined temporarily. That case was issued at the district court level. It's likely to be appealed and then it may make it all the way to the Supreme Court, we don't know. Mm. But it's also just one facet of asylum law. The credible fear interview process is when somebody comes in and they have that interview with the asylum officer. If they pass that credible fear interview, it doesn't mean that they get asylum. They still have to go to an immigration judge Mm. and apply for asylum and win. And what that means is the credible fear interview has been rectified temporarily back to where it was before so, so it can get to the next stage uh-huh. so the person can get to the next stage mm-hmm. but this case called matter of ab is still out there in hyperspace you know in the universe <laughs> asylum <Yeah>. universe <laughs> and is affecting asylum you know when somebody applies for asylum before an immigration judge that's still mm-hmm. potentially affecting them um, now the executive office of immigration review which is the agency under the department of justice that oversees the immigration courts recently came out with a memo guidance saying this Grace v. Sessions case only applies to the credible fear context. But I think you can say you can see a lot of um, discussion by Judge Sullivan that seems to show that, no, it's not just limited to the credible fear interview process. Um, Pereira versus Sessions. That's another case. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is that's this is definitely a, a case heavy uh, episode for a sure. Case heavy, but episode. it's very it's very important. It's important to know the nuances 
of these cases and how it affects us and people seeking uh, asylum. Mm -hmm. So when a court is initiating the removal Mm -hmm. proceedings and they have to give a notice to appear. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that notice to appear, um, they must let the applicant know that where and when to appear and provide them like the facts of the charges and give them uh, a reasonable time of to show up to the courts. Mm-hmm. So what is, uh, I'm hearing about the stop time rule. Mm-hmm. So what is the How does this issue? all involve? Correct. So like when somebody, so it's actually, people should know, to be put in immigration court proceedings, mm. only certain officers can do that. Only certain agencies of the government can do that. Our laws, the statute, the Immigration Nationality Act, says that the immigration, the immigration officers, so ICE, or USCIS, which is under the Department of Homeland Security, can issue, can write notices to appear to begin the immigration court process. So even though immigration court is civil, it follows kind of like a criminal type Mm. of situation in criminal Mm. proceedings you have charges filed with the court and that begins your criminal matter well in immigration court you have this document called the notice to appear which has charges or facts Mm. that are alleged by the department of homeland security and a reason why they believe under the law this person is removable and they're filed with the court and that begins the proceedings but our laws say that they're what a notice to appear is, is that it must provide a reason why the person's removable, must provide facts that support that reason, but it also has to provide the date, place of where they're going to have this immigration court that, proceeding. That should be the basic. And know, if you think about be. it, that should be basic because if, if, if I was, even just on the criminal context. When do context, I show up and where? Right. Where if I'm being right. told, okay, if I'm immigrant A and mm. I've, I've just come, I was just arrested for no driving without a license. Mm. And my local police officer turns me over because there's a detainer on, in my case, turns me over to ICE. ICE comes, literally meets with me, they interview me, and then they write this document. I'm going to be detained, but there's due process, right? And due process means that I have to know what's going on and I have to be able to have a place where I can argue my case. And I can't do that if I don't really know where is it that I'm going to argue my case or is there going to be a case? So what's happening now? What's that discrepancy? So (laughs) what what, uh, Pereira v. Sessions involved, so you have the law says, okay, this is what a notice to appear should contain, date and place. And then you had some very, you know, smart lawyers who were helping their client apply for what is called non-lawful cancellation for non-lawful permanent residents. People who are not permanent residents trying to stop their deportation, cancel their deportation. Mm -hmm. And it allows them to eventually become a green card holder if they prove many different things. One of the requirements is that the person has to show that they have been living in the United States for 10 years continuously and our laws say the statute that gives this relief says that that 10 years the way that it's counted is it means it it's from the time that the person is here in the united states from the very beginning when they entered and then stops that's where the clock the the stop clock rule comes from 
uh, stop the clock, uh, stops the date of the notice to appear is issued. Okay. And so these smart lawyers were arguing and saying, (laughs) well, Mr. Pereira has more than 10 years, but his notice to appear actually was filed in, I believe, I can't remember what year, but year seven. And so he has more than 10 years, but the notice to appear was filed in year seven. Seven. And so he can't show 10 years. But um, we think there's a problem because that notice to appear he was issued is deficient. It's putative. And the reason why it's deficient is because there's no date or time or the immigration court place where he's supposed to. Mm -hmm. And the immigration, well, the Supreme Court agreed. And they said, you're right, your client should be eligible for cancellation or at least for purposes of the stop clock, uh, stop time rule, um, because the notice to appear that he was issued is deficient. And it's not just a small error. It goes to a pretty significant part of what a notice to appear is because our statute says congress said this is what a notice to appear should contain x y and z and requirement x date time and place is one of the requirements and it's not there and so what practitioners like me and others around the country are saying is that that decision doesn't just extend to this you know to the cancellation scenario but rather it goes to whether these people are being placed in immigration court proceedings correctly. Right. Uh, it goes to whether these court proceedings were started correctly, jurisdiction. And we're right. arguing that the holdings in the Supreme Court case are not just limited to this very specific defense that people can apply for, but rather puts into question how immigration, how de- the Department of Homeland Security is putting people in proceedings issuing them these notices to appear that have no date and time. Mm-hmm. And by so the way, there's no follow- way they can show yeah. up and well, then it starts the cancellation or it starts the removal process. And by yeah. the way, after this decision, the Supreme court said, you know, in their decision, they said, well, there's a possibility that department of Homeland security can put the correct date or time because there's a, there's a computer process where they can log oh, in wow. and do okay. that. Mm-hmm. Well, by the way, after this decision, the, Department of Homeland Security decided not to do that and started giving fake dates. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think that just reiterates something that we're seeing in terms of the bureaucracy of the immigration court Mm. and the Department of Homeland Security and and policies is that there's this entrenched entrenchedness Mm. of like doing things wrong. And the Supreme Court saying that's that's wrong. That goes against the law. But you still have the Department of Homeland Security issuing notices to appear that are incorrect. And maybe there are those savvy people that find out the date and time and place of their immigration court hearing. But what about the many people who are issued a notice to appear at the border? They're released because they pay bond. They've Mm. passed their credible fear interview. And they have no attorneys. There is no guaranteed um, paid representation in immigration court. And they have potentially no way of figuring out when is their court hearing. So is there any end in sight um, to rectify the situation? I know that was just brought to the Supreme Court, but um, moving forward. I mean, I think you're you're starting to see challenges um, at so the district court. The yeah, yeah, and the Sixth mm-hmm. Circuit just came out with a decision saying that it is only lim- that this holding in Pereira is only limited to the cancellation removal context. I think that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But um, I think you'll start seeing a lot of cases, hopefully in the Fourth Circuit, um, mm. saying, no, this Pereira case is beyond the cancellation context. It goes to the heart of putting people in removal proceedings and DHS adhering to what the law says. Got it. All right. So um, I just I just feel like I was just in a, a law school class. Really oh, no. Ho- hopefully no. I get... Hopefully I get good marks. No, I uh, hope not. I hope no, no. I hope that it wasn't that. In, in I mean, I remember I remember when no. I was in law school like being like, She's like, oh, I was my bringing God. up bad memories. I know. It's no, no. No, traumatic experiences. Right. <laughs> and then you're, you're a great teacher, great teacher. Now, um moving a little bit away from that and talking about uh current events. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, the government shutdown is uh still going on. Is it on 20 Day twenty four or twenty five, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. in there. We'll we'll go back and verify. But in the case of immigration, what is uh, happening at ICE, and does the government shutdown affect any of its services? Let's start there. So hmm. it's not just ICE. The government shutdown is affecting many services that people didn't realize are government services, right, and they're right. essential. They're not just. Uh, or they affect a lot of parts of our lives. And this isn't just limited to U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents or people here on visas, but it's also affecting the very people that our president is focused on, which is our people who are in immigration court proceedings or people mm-hmm. who are detained or in some type of immigration deportation removal process. And what we've started to see is because there is no funding for some of these agencies, in essence, the government is shut down. You have the immigration courts, which have, I believe last time I checked, it was over 500,000 cases pending. You have the immigration courts, which have literally shut down, and they're not seeing cases. So if I have a client that has an immigration a trial on their asylum case scheduled for today, that client... Even though that client may be waiting, had been has been waiting for three years to finally put forward his asylum case, that client will not be seen. They will not have their day in court, and their case will be continued, God knows for how long, uh, more. And that that affects lives. I mean, you know, you talk about this idea of like, well, people should be applying legally. Well, they are applying legally. Mm-hmm. They're applying under our valid you know, our laws, our asylum laws, and they've done everything in terms of going to their immigration court proceedings, filing an application, providing evidence, waiting for that immigration court, and then to have that be canceled. Um, I believe the track is a reporting website that is, um, I think, uh, is run by Syracuse, uh, just sent out an email that, I believe over 42,000 cases have literally just been canceled. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, So that's 42 potentially thousand trials or some cases in some way or other. And people can't get asylum or can't even be denied asylum, right? So the idea is for these people to have a right to apply for asylum. And if they get denied, Mm -hmm. then, you know, if they don't appeal, they go back, right? Mm -hmm. And if they don't, if they do win, then they go forward, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can't even move forward if cases can't be seen. So that's a major problem. Um, And then the other thing that came out, I believe it was BuzzFeed who published a recent article that was very interesting, um, is that 
it's not just the government courts, it's not just the immigration courts, but also ICE. ICE receives funding, appropriated funds from Congress and to enforce our immigration laws. And that includes monies for arresting, but also detaining people. Mm -hmm. Um, At any given time, our laws say that ICE has a, you know, there's a mandate to hold 33,000 people anywhere, place and time all over our nation. There's actually currently about over 48,000 people detained, which is even more than the uh, the bed mandate. And I'm not sure how that's being paid for. Uh, right. Many people right. are held. In fact, in the Washington, D.C. area, many people are held in jails or um, civil detention centers that have contracts with ICE. So they're government contractors. Mm-hmm. And usually ICE pays them monthly or in advance to hold X amount of people. Mm. Well... They're holding people, but they're not being paid. They, right. They don't have the funding. <laughs> they don't so. have the funding to be paid. Um, <laughs> and so. you're already over the capacity. Right. So there's talks of possible releasing of non-dangerous Well, there's talks individuals. of the BuzzFeed article that right. talked about that I'm referring to discussed how some holding some of these people may be in violation of something that is called the Anti-Deficiency Act. Yeah, it's like a hundred-year-old uh, law. It's this old law mm-hmm. uh, that basically says that Kong, you know, our agencies, our government cannot expend, cannot provide services that have not been appropriated for or beyond what mm-hmm. government has appropriated, Congress has appropriated for. Mm-hmm. But that also means that our contractors cannot give free services Uh, so there's an argument and there's only an exception if it's essential to prevent danger to life or property so it's not just people who have who are our government considers dangerous because they have some sort of criminal conviction serious criminal conviction Mm -hmm. but many people who are detained in fact there's been articles and articles and our children and families or sure. people, immigrants that don't have any criminal history whatsoever mm-hmm. and they're being detained. And if our laws say you can't, you know, contractors shouldn't hold, it's not, you know, hold unless it's essential or if it's going to affect, you know, somebody's life and property, then what about those people that are not a danger, that are children? I think there's been several articles of, 10,000 unaccompanied minors detained Mm -hmm. uh, across the nation. Why aren't those children being released faster? It's bad for their mental health. It's bad for their physical health, especially because we don't have funds to pay for their detention. And I think there's discussion as to whether this is going to be some type of government, there's going to be some type of government oversight of what happened during the government shutdown of detaining people. Um, Especially as this sort of continues and there's no projected end in sight, at least uh, for the time being. So I I just thought that was very interesting because we're talking about the the government shutdown and that I think is 25% of the government is, is not funded. So it's a smaller portion, but... You know, many people are not talking about the actual agencies and the services that are impacted by them. So, right. Not to mention the, the 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 bigger thing is you do have some of these essential officers uh, or deemed essential, such as Custom Border Patrol, TSA agents, 
They're having to show up right, yeah. and work without pay. pay yeah, uh, and if so our government yeah. is focused on national security, I think it is a natural concern <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to our yeah. security if TSA agents are not screening people. Or uh, there was another article the about flights not being screened properly no, because we don't yeah. have enough. I mean, I'm yeah, scared exactly. of getting on a flight. <laughs> This is definitely very informative, and and I appreciate your your time, Claudia, for coming here and bringing to light, you know, the different sort of immigration cases that's that's happening, that's ongoing, and the work you and your team is putting forth. So we definitely appreciate that. All right. Well, Claudia, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. And to all nonprofits and private attorneys and just volunteers, keep on fighting the good fight. And where there is darkness, there is light. For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG underscore law and our Instagram underscore EIG law to join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you next time.